Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.11, The Causes of Queen Anne's War. This week, we are going to spend the first of two episodes looking at Queen Anne's War. Queen Anne's War is a conflict that seems often forgotten in American colonial history. However, it is a battle that would carry with it some major ramifications for the future of the North American English colonies. It would help set the stage for further conflict with both the Native American tribes as well as the French later in the century. It would also, however, be a critical conflict in helping establish the conditions whereby the massive colonial expansion of the 18th century could take place. Before we dive in for today, I want to talk about a handful of things that should hopefully make all of this make a bit more sense. King William's War continued on until 1697. The end of the war resulted in a condition of status quo antebellum. Orders remained the same, and everybody pretty much just agreed to stop fighting. Now, there are several reasons that the fighting stopped. However, chief amongst them is the fact that neither France nor England seemed terribly interested in their colonial war. This also explains why I never dedicated an episode to the grand finale of King William's War. The entire thing just loses energy and then peters out. The war does not go out with a bang, but rather a whimper. Neither France nor England were interested in spending any more money on the conflict or extending any further resources to keep up the war effort. The war officially ended with the Peace of Ryswick, which just reset everything to its pre-war conditions. However, the end of King William's War marked a greater trend in the history of our colonies. The next half-century is going to be marked by continued hostility between the French and the English in North America, as well as with the Native Americans, whom both sides attempted to ally themselves with. Even at the time of the treaty, nobody was really under any false impression that hostilities were over for good. I am going to set this topic aside for just right now. We will return there in a bit. But before we look at the causes and preparation for the war in North America, I want to head back across the ocean and answer the question of what exactly Queen Anne's War was all about. The outbreak of Queen Anne's War has little to do with anything going on in the colonies. Rather, the conflict is something that began back in Europe. Louis XIV was, if nothing else, a highly ambitious king. Now, Louis was long interested in making France the predominant power in Europe. However, the recent string of losses in the colonies had stymied his dreams. The problem was that Europe at this point was a continent full of alliances. There were great powers aligned with the smaller countries. This system of alliances meant that it was increasingly difficult, if not completely impossible, for a single European country to emerge as the dominant power. Much to the chagrin of Louis XIV, and likely a few other European leaders, this produced a kind of stability that was very difficult to move past. While stability is often something that is much sought after, in a system like Europe during this era, it made upward progress virtually impossible. Everybody was stuck in their spot, and it was going to take something significant for a rearranging of the European power structure. As though on cue, it would be Charles II of Spain who would go ahead and die without an heir in 1700, 
thus disrupting the balance of power in Europe. The problem is that, as one would imagine, upon the death of Charles II, everybody had their eyes on the Spanish throne. Spain was still a major power at this point, though they had begun their decline really at the end of the Thirty Years' War. That does not mean that come 1700, they had become a second-rate power. They were still a major European power, as well as a colonial juggernaut. As with the death of kings throughout time, where there has not been a clear successor, what followed was a battle for the throne. In this particular case, what so seriously threatened the balance of power in Europe is that Louis XIV's mother had been Anna of Austria, a Spanish princess, and the daughter of Spanish King Philip III. So, Philip III was the grandfather of Louis XIV. Philip III's son, the aptly named Philip IV, was the father of Charles II, thus making Charles II's grandfather also Philip III. This was the nightmare of the English. Louis XIV had a legitimate claim to the Spanish throne. Now, by this point, Louis XIV was an old man and was not actually planning on taking the throne for himself. However, Louis XIV was very interested in passing the throne to his own grandson, Philip of Anjou. The result here for France, however, would basically be the same. They would have a blood union with Spain and would quickly become the dominant power in both Europe and in the colonies. The idea of a union between Spain and France was about the worst thing that the English could imagine. What's worse for England is that Charles II had indicated that he did want Philip to succeed him to the throne. Initially, the English seemed to agree to get on board with the idea, as long as it was agreed that the two crowns should remain separate. This was on the basis that the French and Spanish alliance would not interfere with English activity and that the two crowns would remain separate and not unite. Now, I can promise you that England liked nothing about this idea. However, the idea of a war with a combined France and Spain was not particularly alluring. So now, right here, with everything pretty much on the brink, Louis XIV decides to give everything a big shove right over the edge of the precipice. What exactly did Louis XIV do, you ask? What Louis did is that he provoked the English by extending France's continental reach. France sent troops into the Spanish Netherlands, the area that is now Belgium. Likewise, he started to rapidly increase trade with the Spanish at the expense of the English and their Dutch allies. All of this is concerning on its own. However, the big blow was about to come when former King James II died in September 1701. When King William's war ended with the Treaty of Ryswick, Louis XIV recognized William as the King of England. So, case settled. William is the King. Well, that is right up until James II died. If you'll recall, James II ended up having a son, which threw everybody into a frenzy about how England was looking at the real possibility of James II forming a new Catholic dynasty. This proved to be one of the factors that pushed everybody into that camp that James II needed to go. So, in theory, the death of James II should not have really mattered because William of Orange was the recognized King of England. 
except that Louis XIV decided to throw some gasoline onto the situation and officially recognized James III as the rightful King of England. Suddenly, you have the risk of a union between France and Spain, French interference of English and Dutch commercial interests, French continental military expansion, and finally, a direct challenge to the legitimacy of the English monarch. England certainly could not ignore that slight, and once again, everybody found themselves crashing headlong towards war. In Europe, this war is known as the War of Spanish Succession. In the colonies, the war would take on the name of Queen Anne's War. Well, distinct issues existed in the North American colonies, issues that largely trace back to the end of King William's War, the war is typically seen as a theater of the War of Spanish Succession. Now, of course, we still need to answer the question of who exactly Queen Anne is. As it turns out, William of Orange would not outlive James II by that much, himself dying in March of 1702. Mary II, his co-monarch, died back in December of 1694. This means that as of March of 1702, the reign of William and Mary had come to an end without any children. The effect of this is that the crown passed to Mary's sister and the daughter of the late King James II, Anne. Like her sister Mary, Anne had been raised as an Anglican at the urging of Charles II. Now, Queen Anne would come into power just in time to deal with the clouds of war that were gathering upon the horizon. Meanwhile, back in the colonies, things had remained exceptionally tense following the end of King William's War. Nobody was under any false impression that a lasting peace had been reached, and almost immediately after the end of the war, they took actions to prepare for another conflict that everybody saw coming. What made Queen Anne's War such a complicated matter in North America was the number of parties involved. To the north, you had the French in Canada, who likewise held designs of expanding down south into the interior of North America. There were, of course, the English, who by this point controlled everything from Maine south to Spanish Florida. Which brings us to the Spanish, who again held Florida. Finally, you had a fourth, much more diverse group in the mix, the Native Americans. What had emerged during the later portion of the 18th century was a series of alliances between the different tribes and the European powers. We saw this with the French and the Indian alliances that had been plaguing the New England colonies up in Maine during King William's War. Likewise, we see alliances between the five nations of the Iroquois and the English in New York, organized by Edmund Andros. It was through that alliance that we would see them deliver such a devastating blow in King Philip's War to Philip and his warriors. As all of this is happening, the English were likewise making yet another attempt to consolidate all those northern colonies. Now, this entire process was done with a bit more finesse than what we saw during the Dominion of New England. The colonies are not combined into a single entity. However, they do share a common governor. The Board of Trade gave this job to Richard Coote, the first Earl of Bellamont. Bellamont was now the governor of New York, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. He was also named militia commander of both New Jersey and Rhode Island. The colonists in Massachusetts 
hated everything about this, as it reeked of the Old Dominion government. The experiment lasted just three years, until the death of Bellamont in 1701. The consolidation under Bellamont was not as much for the purpose of extracting more revenue out of the New England colonies, nor was it meant to help rein in colonial excesses as the Dominion was. Rather, the point was to attempt to consolidate the colonial militias when the need arose. Problems with cohesion further followed the end of Bellamont's time as he was replaced with Joseph Dudley. And yes, I do mean that Joseph Dudley. It will probably not come as a surprise to any of you that the colonists in Massachusetts were not thrilled with the appointment of their new governor. They had not forgotten the Dominion, nor the role that Dudley played in it. Dudley proved to be a deeply unpopular figure, and his place as governor of the colony during a time of war is going to make him an ideal scapegoat whenever something goes wrong. Among the most serious concerns for the English was that they remained sparsely settled along the frontier and were often easy targets for Indian raids. Back when we discussed King Philip's War, we spent a lot of time talking about the hit-and-run Indian tactics that came to define the war for them. If you'll recall, tribes would move into these frontier towns, strike quickly causing significant damage, and then disappear back into the woods before the English could respond. The Native Americans understood that engaging the English in a pitched battle was probably not going to end well for them. These methods of striking quickly and then getting out, however, meant that the Native Americans could deal a good amount of damage while limiting their own exposure. This technique had proven to be an effective way of fighting the English, and the tribe saw no reason to give it up now. The French, preparing for a future conflict, built a series of fortifications along the upper portions of the Mississippi River. Among the most critical of these forts was built by a handful of settlers along the St. Clair River, linking Lake Erie and Lake Huron. This particular fort marks the founding of Detroit. The purpose of these forts was to protect the fur trade from English incursion, specifically to the west of the Mississippi, where the French dominated. One of the real advantages that the French in their region had is that they were a unified front. The French settlement in Canada was a single, cohesive unit, whereas the English colonies were a mismatch of different settlements. This helps to explain why the English were so interested in attempting to make the colonies more cohesive. Beyond just the establishment of forts up in the north, France was shoring up their defenses along the southern Mississippi as well. In 1701, the French had established a few small forts around the area of New Orleans, though the city itself would not officially be founded for another 17 years. The French likewise founded a settlement in 1699 in modern-day Biloxi. This is critical as it meant that the French now had increased their control over both the northern Mississippi as well as the southern Mississippi River. This would greatly increase their access to the Gulf of Mexico hence increasing their ability to conduct commerce. Among the European powers, it was the French and the English who were really in control of the future United States and Canada. However, the Spanish were still a player in all of this. The important portion of their holding that we need to glance at is, of course, Florida. Florida had never really become a major colonial settlement for the Spanish, 
and remained a minor holding of theirs. This is not to say that it was not an important holding for the Spanish, however, as it was located in a strategic spot for shipping from the Caribbean to the Atlantic. We have not talked much about Florida since way back in episode 1.6 when we discussed the founding of Florida, as well as early Spanish colonial ambitions along the eastern seaboard. If you remember, they had ventured up to the realm of Powhatan, where it appears that they were promptly wiped out. After that, they decided that they had little interest in being overextended and pulled back entirely within the confines of Florida. Conveniently for us, not much has really changed in the past century, and the Spanish in Florida are pretty much exactly where we left them. Florida, nor really anything north of Mexico, had ever developed into much of a priority for the Spanish. However, that did not stop them from presenting a serious risk to the English colonists, especially in Carolina. For the Native Americans, the situation was far more complex and fluid. Unlike any of the European powers, the Native Americans never represented a single unified bloc. Rather, what emerges is a series of alliances based primarily on pragmatism. Native American tribes had long learned that regardless of the situation, they often found themselves in a worse position when dealing with the European powers. It is for this reason that we see the five nations of the Iroquois move in a direction of neutrality rather than in a direction of making alliances. The Iroquois had long been a powerful ally of the English. Remember that they were paramount in helping defeat the army under the command of Philip. However, by the turn of the century, there were increasing attempts by the French to woo the Iroquois over into their camp, much to the annoyance of the English. The Iroquois had little interest at this point of being involved and rather decided to enter into a pair of treaties in 1701, one with France and one with England. The treaty that was signed with France was a non-aggression pact. The Iroquois and the French both agreed that, should war break out, the Iroquois would remain neutral, and as a result, the French would respect their sovereignty. The treaty with the English involved the Iroquois deeding their hunting lands to the English. Though this may sound like a strange move, the point of it was that the English would now protect said hunting grounds from French incursion. This also implies, at least to some degree, that the Iroquois now considered themselves to be directly protected by the English Empire. Though that question was still open at this point and would remain so for some time to come. This decision by the Iroquois was largely a disaster for the English. Sure, there were joint treaties, and yeah, the Iroquois did not defect to the French. However, it meant that the most powerful Indian ally that the English had was now a neutral party. The French, on the other hand, enjoyed good relations with many of the northern tribes and had now eliminated their chief rival's closest ally. This in turn emboldened French expansion into the interior where they found numerous friendly tribes who were more than happy to form alliances after years of poor treatment at the hands of the English. No place was this felt more acutely than in those English frontier towns. We have seen time and time again the risk that these frontier towns faced, as they made for easy targets from attacking Native Americans. The French were more than happy with that situation, 
as they were eager, at a minimum, to contain and stop English expansion, and at best, push the English back inwards and away from the frontier. Despite the French designs on trying to rein the English in, their eyes were still largely looking west, and they had little interest in being trapped by the French, nor constantly harassed around their frontiers by the Indians. Therefore, the situation that we have as events in Europe lead to the War of Spanish Succession is that the French in Canada are anxious to both rein in English expansion as well as extend their own hold on the interior of the North American continent, especially in regards to the Upper Mississippi. The Spanish, who are now allied with France, pose a serious risk to the southern colonies and moving up into the Chesapeake. Finally, there are those shifting alliances with the frontier Indians, alliances that are largely shifting in the direction of the French. The English found themselves in the unenviable position of having enemies to the north, the south, and along their western frontier. Finally, consider the economic risks at play in this situation. The location of the French and the Spanish could have a dire effect on disrupting English trade with the colonies, something that could potentially have far-reaching implications. Next week, we are going to travel up to the north and deal with that theater. However, to wrap up for today, I want to spend our time looking at the southern theater of the conflict. The War of Spanish Succession, or Queen Anne's War as we will refer to it, got started officially in the spring of 1702, when England and Holland declared war on France and Spain. For the governor of Carolina, James Moore, the war was really a stroke of luck. His colony was located in a spot where there was real fear of Spanish aggression. Recall from our episode on the founding of Carolina that the area south of Virginia had spent several decades as something of a no-man's land, separating the English from the Spanish. With the beginning of the decline of the Spanish and the rise of the English, it was only then that we see the colonies south of Virginia really begin to appear. For Governor Moore, he saw an opportunity. Moore was, if nothing else, a warhawk. He saw an advantage in striking swiftly at the Spanish, eliminating the threat and protecting their southern and western frontiers. And just a super brief note, if you're wondering when Carolina split up, just hold on a bit longer. We are going to be having a few episodes a bit down the road about the Carolina colony, where we're going to address that. The Spanish struck first, leading an attack in 1702 on the Carolina frontier with the Appalachee doing most of the actual fighting. Unfortunately for the Spanish, the English had been tipped off of the incoming raid and absolutely routed the combined forces at a skirmish along the Flint River in what is now Georgia. The English, like the Spanish, turned to the Native Americans to aid in the fighting, and in this case it was the Creek tribe that did much of the heavy lifting. Well, the Spanish defeat was near total here. Most of the combatants were either dead or, in the case of the Appalachian Indians, captured and sold into slavery. The Battle of Flint River was more of a stage setter than anything else. It was the battle that provided the necessary justification for Moore to strike out against the Spanish. Moore quickly assembled a combined force of around 800 
made up of a mixture of English colonists and Native Americans. For both sides, there was relatively little question about where Moore and his force would strike. The target was always going to be St. Augustine. This is not because St. Augustine was some special target, nor was it strategically located, but rather because it was pretty much the only target. Remember a few minutes ago when I mentioned that the Spanish really had not done much since we last left them? Well, St. Augustine remained really the only major settlement. Sure, there were a few fortifications scattered around here and there, but in terms of an actual settlement, St. Augustine was the only game in town. For the Spanish commander, Joseph de Zuniga y Cerda, it made the job of protecting the city easier though by no means was it going to be an easy task. Part of the problem that Zuniga faced was that he only had about 1,600 total people in the entire colony, meaning that the English had a sizable advantage in the numbers game. The only thing that Zuniga had going for him was the Castillo de San Marcos, which was at least a formidable obstacle to Moore and his men taking St. Augustine. Taking the fortress was going to be a requirement for taking the town. As Moore and his forces closed in on St. Augustine, he split his men into two columns, with Moore leading one group down the coast and the second heading down the St. John's River, led by Colonel Robert Daniel. When the groups reconverged at St. Augustine in late October, they discovered that splitting into two columns was a pointless endeavor. Zuniga clearly understood that he was badly outnumbered, though he likewise also understood that he was in possession of a pretty strong fortress. Putting the two and two together, Zuniga had evacuated the population of St. Augustine and moved everybody inside of the Castillo de San Marcos. This means for more, rather than a quick victory, a quick victory that he was probably hoping for, the plan became a hopefully not prolonged Siege of the Castillo. Days turned into weeks as the English kept hurling cannonballs at the fort in an effort to wear Zuniga down. The second thing that happened here was a race would develop between Moore and Zuniga. The Castillo was badly overcrowded, and by this point, the one saving grace for Zuniga is that Moore and his men were only equipped with solid shot and not exploding shells. If Moore could have launched exploding shells into the interior of the Castillo, it would have quickly become a bloodbath. For his part, Zuniga was trapped inside of an overcrowded fortress, with little hope of being relieved. Zuniga had realized, before he got himself holed up inside of the Castillo, that there was little hope of being relieved from the Spanish in Florida, that numbers simply were not there for a rescue mission. What Zuniga did do, however, was rush a dispatch out prior to the beginning of the siege. This dispatch was sent to the Spanish forces in Havana, letting them know of his predicament and requesting reinforcements. Not to be outdone, Moore quickly realized that he would really like some of those exploding shells that would turn the Castillo into a bloodbath. Moore, therefore, makes a risky move to send a ship south to the English base in Jamaica to acquire said exploding shells. What ensues is a race between the English and the Spanish for who would get help first. Moore, in this case, was at a distinct disadvantage, 
Havana is a lot closer to St. Augustine than is Jamaica. Further, the Gulf of Mexico at this point had a strong Spanish presence patrolling it. This is pretty much where things stand. For nearly two months, Moore blasted away at the Castillo. Zuniga would return fire while stuck inside of the Castillo. Rinse, father, repeat. On December 13th, 1702, Spanish ships were spotted. Zuniga and the Spanish had won the race. For more, all hope of defeating the Spanish immediately evaporated. Suddenly, it was his turn to turn around and get out of Dodge while he still could. Moore did turn and destroy St. Augustine on his way out of town. Unfortunately, he also determined that escaping by sea was too dangerous, with the Spanish coming, and thus he was forced to burn the ships that he brought along with him. By the time that Moore and his men returned to Carolina, there was a lot of anger being thrown at their now former governor. Moore, desperate to try and salvage the situation, proposed an even more audacious plan to attack the Appalachian tribes on the eastern side of Pensacola. The assembly in Carolina, however, was just not feeling it. Moore, not to be deterred, ended up putting together his own force, built mostly of friendly Native American tribes, and undertook the mission alone. What ensued was nothing short of a complete pillaging of the Appalachian settlements. Moore and the men fighting with him would lead a campaign of total warfare against these tribes. The surviving Appalachian would be forced to move further inland, towards the relative safety of the French holdings in Alabama. It is at least an interesting thought of what would have happened should Moore have moved into Florida better equipped. Had the Castillo and Zuniga been defeated, Florida would have easily come into English control. As it stands, Florida would remain in Spanish possession until 1821, other than a few years after the Seven Years' War, when the English held it. The incident also illustrates the growing power of Carolina, and the threat that they faced from the southern theater of Queen Anne's War. Moore's mission on St. Augustine might have been a failure, but his routing of the Appalachian tribe had not gone unnoticed by either the Spanish nor the French. We will briefly return to Carolina next time, as it still does have a role to play in Queen Anne's War. However, we are going to leave it here for now. Next time, we are going to head north to New England, where the majority of Queen Anne's War is going to play out. We will then drop back down to the south to check on what is happening in Carolina. All of this is going to bring us to discussing the legacy of Queen Anne's War and what it would mean for the long term of our colonies. Until then, I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time to wrap up Queen Anne's War. <laughs>